Volume 1, Chapter 11 of Marius the Epicurean This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Marius the Epicurean by Walter Patter Volume 1, Chapter 11 The Most Religious City in the World Marius awoke early, and passed curiously from room to room, noting for more careful inspection by and by the rolls of manuscripts. Even greater than his curiosity in gazing for the first time on this ancient possession was his eagerness to look out upon Rome itself, as he pushed back curtain and shutter, and stepped forth in the fresh morning upon one of the many balconies, with an oft-repeated dream realised at last. He was certainly fortunate in the time of his coming to Rome. That old pagan world, of which Rome was the flower, had reached its perfection in the things of poetry and art, a perfection which indicated only too surely the eve of decline. As in some vast intellectual museum, all its manifold products were intact and in their places, and with custodians also still extant, duly qualified to appreciate and explain them. And at no period of history had the material Rome itself been better worth seeing, lying there not less consummate than that world of pagan intellect which it represented in every phase of its darkness and light. The various work of many ages fell here harmoniously together, as yet untouched save by time, adding the final grace of a rich softness to its complex expression. Much which spoke of ages earlier than Nero, the great rebuilder, lingered on, antique, quaint, immeasurably venerable, like the relics of the medieval city in the Paris of Louis the Fourteenth. The work of Nero's own time had come to have that sort of old-world and picturesque interest which the work of Louis has for ourselves, while without stretching a parallel too far, we might perhaps liken the architectural finesse of the archaic Hadrian to the more excellent products of our own Gothic revival. The temple of Antoninus and Faustina was still fresh in all the majesty of its closely arrayed columns of Cipollino, but on the whole little had been added under the late and present emperors, and during fifty years of public quiet a sober brown and grey had grown apace on things. The gilding on the roof of many a temple had lost its garishness. Cornice and capital of polished marble shone out with all the crisp freshness of real flowers amid the already mouldering travertine and brickwork, though the birds had built freely among them. What Marius then saw was in many respects after all deduction of difference, more like the modern Rome than the enumeration of particular losses might lead us to suppose. The Renaissance, in its most ambitious mood and with amplest resources, having resumed the ancient classical tradition there, with no break or obstruction, as it had happened, in any very considerable work of the Middle Age. Immediately before him, on the square steep height, where the earliest little old Rome had huddled itself together, arose the palace of the Caesars. Half veiling the vast substruction of rough brown stone, 
line upon line of successive ages of builders, the trim old-fashioned garden walks, under their closely woven walls of dark glossy foliage, test of long and careful cultivation, wound gradually, among choice trees, statues and fountains, distinct and sparkling in the full morning sunlight, to the richly tinted mass of pavilions and corridors above, centering in the lofty, white marble dwelling-place of Apollo himself. How often had Marius looked forward to that first free wandering through Rome, to which he now went forth, with a heat in the town sunshine, like a mist of fine gold dust spread through the air, to the height of his desire, making the dun coolness of the narrow streets welcome enough at intervals. He almost feared, descending the stair hastily, lest some unforeseen accident should snatch the little cup of enjoyment from him ere he passed the door. In such morning rambles in places new to him, life had always seemed to come at its fullest. It was then he could feel his youth, that youth the days of which he had already begun to count jealously, in entire possession. So the grave, pensive figure, a figure, be it said, nevertheless, fresher far than often came across it now, moved through the old city towards the lodgings of Cornelius. Certainly not by the most direct course, however eager to rejoin the friend of yesterday. Bent as keenly on seeing as if his first day in Rome were to be also his last, the two friends descended along the Wicus Tuscus, with its rows of incense stalls, into the Via Nova, where the fashionable people were busy shopping, and Marius saw with much amusement the frizzled heads then a la mode. A glimpse of the Marmorata, the haven at the riverside, where specimens of all the precious marbles of the world were lying amid great white blocks from the quarries of Luna, took his thoughts for a moment to his distant home. They visited the flower-market, lingering where the coronarii pressed on them the newest species, and purchased zinnias, now in blossom, like painted flowers, thought Marius, to decorate the folds of their togas. Loitering to the other side of the forum, past the great gallon's drug-shop, after a glance at the announcements of new poems on sale, attached to the door-post of a famous bookseller, they entered the curious library of the Temple of Peace, then a favourite resort of literary men, and read, fixed there for all to see, the diurnal, or gazette of the day, which announced, together with births and deaths, prodigies and accidents, and much mere matter of business, the date and manner of the philosophic emperor's joyful return to his people, and thereafter, with eminent names faintly disguised, what would carry that day's news in many copies over the provinces, a certain matter concerning the great lady, known to be dear to him, whom he had left at home. It was a story, with the development of which society, had indeed for some time past edified or amused itself, rallying sufficiently from the panic of a year ago, not only to welcome back its ruler, but also to relish a chronique scandaleuse. And thus, when soon after Marius saw the world's wonder, he was already acquainted with the suspicions which have ever since hung about her name. Twelve o'clock was come before they left the forum, waiting in a little crowd to hear the Akensus, according to old custom, proclaim the hour of noonday, 
at the moment when from the steps of the senate-house the sun could be seen standing between the rostra and the Greekostasis. He exerted for this function a strength of voice which confirmed in Marius a judgment the modern visitor may share with him that Roman throats and Roman chests, namely, must in some peculiar way be differently constructed from those of other people. Such judgment, indeed, he had formed in part the evening before, noting, as a religious procession passed him, how much noise a man and a boy could make, though not without a great deal of real music, of which, in truth, the Romans were then, as ever, passionately fond. Hence the two friends took their way through the Via Flaminia, almost along the line of the modern Corso, already bordered with handsome villas, turning presently to the left into the field of Mars, still the playground of Rome. But the vast public edifices were grown to be almost continuous over the grassy expanse, represented now only by occasional open spaces of verdure and wild flowers. In one of these a crowd was standing, to watch a party of athletes stripped for exercise. Marius had been surprised at the luxurious variety of the litters borne through Rome, where no carriage-horses were allowed, and just then one far more sumptuous than the rest, with dainty appointments of ivory and gold, was carried by, all the town pressing with eagerness to get a glimpse of its most beautiful woman as she passed rapidly. Yes, there was the wonder of the world, the Empress Faustina herself. Marius could distinguish, could distinguish clearly, the well-known profile between the floating purple curtains. For indeed all Rome was ready to burst into gaiety again, as it awaited with much real affection, hopeful and animated, the return of its emperor, for whose ovation various adornments were preparing along the streets through which the imperial procession would pass. He had left Rome just twelve months before, amid immense gloom. The alarm of a barbarian insurrection along the whole line of the Danube had happened at the moment when Rome was panic-stricken by the great pestilence. In fifty years of peace, broken only by that conflict in the east from which Lucius Verus among other curiosities, brought back the plague, war had come to seem a merely romantic, superannuated incident of bygone history. And now it was almost upon Italian soil. Terrible were the reports of the numbers and audacity of the assailants. Aurelius, as yet untried in war, and understood by a few only in the whole scope of a really great character, was known to the majority of his subjects as but a careful administrator, though a student of philosophy, perhaps, as we say, a dilettante. But he was also the visible centre of government, towards whom the hearts of a whole people turned, grateful for fifty years of public happiness. Its good genius, its Antonine, whose fragile person might be foreseen speedily giving way under the trials of military life with a disaster like that of the slaughter of the legions by Arminius. Prophecies of the world's impending conflagration were easily credited. The secular fire would descend from heaven. Superstitious fear had even demanded the sacrifice of a human victim. 
Marcus Aurelius, always philosophically considerate of the humours of other people, exercising also that devout appreciation of every religious claim which was one of his characteristic habits, had invoked, in aid of the commonwealth, not only all native gods, but all foreign deities as well, however strange. Help! Help in the ocean space! A multitude of foreign priests had been welcomed to Rome, with their various peculiar religious rites. The sacrifices made on this occasion were remembered for centuries, and the starving poor at least found some satisfaction in the flesh of those herds of white bulls, which came into the city day after day to yield the savour of their blood to the gods. In spite of all this, the legions had but followed their standards despondently. But prestige, personal prestige, the name of emperor, still had its magic power over the nations. The mere approach of the Roman army made an impression on the barbarians. Aurelius and his colleague had scarcely reached Aquileia when a deputation arrived to ask for peace. And now the two imperial brothers were returning home at leisure, were waiting, indeed, at a villa outside the walls, till the capital had made ready to receive them. But although Rome was thus in genial reaction, with much relief, and hopefulness against the winter, facing itself industriously in damask of red and gold, those two enemies were still unmistakably extant. The barbarian army of the Danube was but overawed for a season, and the plague— as we saw when Marius was on his way to Rome, was not to depart till it had done a large part in the formation of the melancholy picturesque of modern Italy, till it had made, or prepared for the making of, the Roman Campagna. The old unaffected, really pagan, peace or gaiety of Antoninus Pius, that genuine, though unconscious, humanist, was gone for ever, and again and again, throughout this day of varied observation, Marius had been reminded, above all else, that he was not merely in the most religious city of the world, as one had said, but that Rome was become the romantic home of the wildest superstition. Such superstition presented itself almost as religious mania in many an incident of his long ramble, incidents to which he gave his full attention, though contending in some measure with a reluctance on the part of his companion, the motive of which he did not understand till long afterwards. Marius certainly did not allow this reluctance to deter his own curiosity. Had he not come to Rome, partly under poetic vocation, to receive all those things, the very impress of life itself, upon the visual, the imaginative organ, as upon a mirror, to reflect them, to transmute them into golden words, he must observe that strange medley of superstition, that centuries' growth, layer upon layer, of the curiosities of religion, one faith jostling another out of place, at least for its picturesque interest, and, as an indifferent outsider might, not too deeply concerned in the question which, if any of them, was to be the survivor. Superficially, at least, the Roman religion, allying itself with much diplomatic economy to possible rivals, was in possession, as a vast and complex system of usage, intertwining itself with every detail of public and private life, attractively enough for those who had but the historic temper, 
and a taste for the past, however much a Lucian might depreciate it. Roman religion, as Marius knew, had indeed been always something to be done, rather than something to be thought, or believed, or loved. Something to be done, in minutely detailed manner, at a particular time and place, correctness in which had long been a matter of laborious learning, with a whole school of ritualists, as also, now and again, a matter of heroic sacrifice, with certain exceptionally devout souls, as when Caius Fabius Dorso, with his life in his hand, succeeded in passing the sentinels of the invading Gauls, to perform a sacrifice on the Quirinal, and, thanks to the divine protection, had returned in safety. So jealous was the distinction between sacred and profane, that, in the matter of the regarding of days, it had made more than half the year a holiday. Aurelius had indeed ordained that there should be no more than a hundred and thirty-five festival days in the year, but in other respects he had followed in the steps of his predecessor, Antoninus Pius, commended especially for his religion, his conspicuous devotion to its public ceremonies, and whose coins are remarkable for their reference to the oldest and most hieratic types of Roman mythology. Aurelius had succeeded in more than healing the old feud between philosophy and religion, displaying himself in singular combination, as at once the most zealous of philosophers and the most devout of polytheists, and lending himself with an air of conviction to all the pageantries of public worship. To his pious recognition of that one orderly spirit, which, according to the doctrine of the Stoics, diffuses itself through the world and animates it, a recognition taking the form with him of a constant effort towards inward likeness thereto, in the harmonious order of his own soul, he had added a warm personal devotion towards the whole multitude of the old national gods, and a great many new foreign ones besides, by him at least, not ignobly conceived. If the comparison may be reverently made, there was something here of the method by which the Catholic Church has added the cultus of the saints to its worship of the one divine being. And to the view of the majority, though the emperor, as the personal centre of religion, entertained the hope of converting his people to philosophic faith, and had even pronounced certain public discourses for their instruction in it, that polytheistic devotion was his most striking feature. Philosophers, indeed, had for the most part thought with Seneca that a man need not lift his hands to heaven, nor ask the sacristan's leave to put his mouth to the ear of an image, that his prayers might be heard the better. Marcus Aurelius, a master in Israel, knew all that well enough. Yet his outward devotion was much more than a concession to popular sentiment, or a mere result of that sense of fellow-citizenship with others, which had made him, again and again, under most difficult circumstances, an excellent comrade. Those others, too, amid all their ignorances, what were they but instruments in the administration of the divine reason, from end to end sweetly and strongly disposing all things? Meantime, philosophy itself had assumed much of what we conceive to be the religious character. It had even cultivated the habit, the power, of spiritual direction, 
the troubled soul, making recourse in its hour of destitution, or amid the distraction of the world, to this or that director, philosopho suo, who could really best understand it. And it had been in vain that the old, grave, and discreet religion of Rome had set itself, according to its proper genius, to prevent or subdue all trouble and disturbance in men's souls. In religion, as in other matters, plebeians as such had a taste for movement, for revolution, and it had been ever in the most populous quarters that religious changes began. To the apparatus of foreign religion, above all, recourse had been made in times of public disquietude or sudden terror, and in those great religious celebrations, before his proceeding against the barbarians, Aurelius had even restored the solemnities of Isis, prohibited in the capital since the time of Augustus, making no secret of his worship of that goddess, though her temple had been actually destroyed by authority in the reign of Tiberius. Her singular and in many ways beautiful ritual was now popular in Rome. And then, what the enthusiasm of the swarming plebeian quarters had initiated was sure to be adopted, sooner or later, by women of fashion. A blending of all the religions of the ancient world had been accomplished. The new gods had arrived, had been welcomed, and found their places, though certainly, with no real security, in any adequate ideal of the divine nature itself in the background of men's minds, that the presence of the newcomer should be edifying, or even refining. High and low addressed themselves to all deities alike, without scruple, confusing them together when they prayed, and in the old authorised threefold veneration of their visible images, by flowers, incense, and ceremonial lights, those beautiful usages which the Church, in her way through the world, ever making spoil of the world's goods for the better uses of the human spirit, took up and sanctified in her service. And certainly the most religious city in the world took no care to veil its devotion, however fantastic. The humblest house had its little chapel or shrine, its image and lamp, while almost every one seemed to exercise some religious function and responsibility. Colleges, composed for the most part of slaves and of the poor, provided for the service of the Compitalian Lares, the gods who presided, respectively, over the several quarters of the city. In one street, Marius witnessed an incident of the festival of the patron deity of that neighbourhood, the way being strewn with box, the houses tricked out gaily in such poor finery as they possessed, while the ancient idol was borne through it in procession, arrayed in gaudy attire, the worse for wear. Numerous religious clubs had their stated anniversaries, on which the members issued with much ceremony from their guild hall, or scola, and traversed the thoroughfares of Rome, proceeded, like the confraternities of the present day, by their sacred banners, to offer sacrifice before some famous image. Black with the perpetual smoke of lamps and incense, oftenest old and ugly, perhaps on that account the more likely to listen to the desires of the suffering, had not those sacred effigies sometimes given sensible tokens that they were aware, the image of the fortune of women, fortuna muliebris, in the Latin way, had spoken, not once only, and declared, Bene me matronae, vidistis ritequer dedicastis, 
the Apollo of Kumai had wept during three whole nights and days. The images in the temple of Juno Sospita had been seen to sweat. Nay, there was blood, divine blood, in the hearts of some of them. The images in the grove of Feronia had sweated blood. From one and all Cornelius had turned away, like the atheist of whom Apuleius tells us he had never once raised hand to lip in passing image or sanctuary, and had parted from Marius finally, when the latter determined to enter the crowded doorway of a temple, on their return into the forum, below the Palatine Hill, where the mothers were pressing in with a multitude of every sort of children to touch the lightning-struck image of the wolf-nurse of Romulus, so tender to little ones, just discernible in its dark shrine, amid a blaze of lights. Marius gazed after his companion of the day, as he mounted the steps to his lodging, singing to himself, as it seemed. Marius failed precisely to catch the words. And as the rich, fresh evening came on, there was heard all over Rome, far above a whisper, the whole town seeming hushed to catch it distinctly, the lively, reckless call to play from the sons and daughters of foolishness, to those in whom their life was still green. Donec virenti canities abest! Donec virenti canities abest! Marius could hardly doubt how Cornelius would have taken the call. And, as for himself, slight as was the burden of positive moral obligation with which he had entered Rome, it was to no wasteful and vagrant affections such as these that his Epicureanism had committed him. End of chapter 11